The scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. We read a lot about Peter because he was so close to Jesus. So when you read through the Gospels, uh, Peter, one of his disciples, one of his apostles, is often with him, and one of the things that means is we see his failings. And perhaps the, the most known failing of Peter that's recorded for us in the Bible is when he denied Jesus. So he was with Jesus when Jesus was arrested, and he's following closely along, but several people come up to him and they say, hey, weren't you with him? Aren't you one of his followers? And he gets increasingly defensive. I swear I am not. So that's a bit of a problem. And so there he is denying Jesus. And and you think, well, what is it? Maybe it was cowardice. Well, certainly uh, it wouldn't be unreasonable for him to be afraid in that moment. And it's not impossible that it was cowardice, but, but what you read of Peter in other parts of the Gospels, you would think that cowardice is not the the most obvious explanation. Peter himself had said to Jesus at one point as Jesus was speaking about the likelihood that people wanted to kill him, that it would happen. Uh, Peter said, look, I am ready to go to prison or even death. Well, look, cowards can say that boldly when you're not facing it. But when Jesus spoke about those who were out to get him, he was speaking about a present reality. And therefore, when he said that, it wasn't a hypothetical Uh, statement, but it seems that he really meant it. And then he's with Jesus in the garden when a mob with weapons comes to arrest him. And he doesn't run in fear, but he pulls out his sword and he goes on the attack when surely they were outnumbered, um, a mob with weapons, and he strikes. The one specific thing that's recorded for us is the, the servant of the high priest with the sword This doesn't look like a guy that was cowardly. It looks like he was ready to fight. And I don't know the case, but Jesus stops him. Put your sword away. And then Jesus says, don't you know I could call 12 legions of angels? Meaning that that he has an army 
far greater than this band of people coming to capture him at his disposal. But then he winds up telling the Roman governor, Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my followers would be fighting. I suspect if Peter was fearful as he saw the arrested Jesus and perhaps was concocting a plan, what do I do? How do I rescue him? Uh, What do we do? The options available to fearful people when they're facing power is to take up the sword. Even people that are feeling afraid will do that. I think if he was feeling afraid at that moment, it could have been because Jesus had neutralized the only things that we normally think to do in a situation like that. Jesus had said, put your sword away. So now we're going to face this evil, these powers, but we're not going to face them uh, with the tools that they use. That vulnerability of then Peter following along, not knowing what to do, that's the kind of vulnerability that all of us will experience because you live in this world and you you figure out ways to navigate the problems of the world, whether they're simple and interpersonal, the rude or offensive person, or whether they're much bigger of that. But we all have our defense mechanisms in various forms. And so you go out into the world, maybe a little bit timid, but prepared to respond. And then Jesus invites you to follow him. And if you're listening to his teaching, you realize a lot of the things that I've come up with Uh, either that have been patterned for me or that make sense of how to respond, Jesus doesn't permit. He's calling me to live a different way. That actually makes us vulnerable. That makes us fearful. Peter was courageous but not cowardly. But in that moment, what do you do as you're watching him being arrested and you can't just get a, a bigger mob together to go fight them? At that point, it makes sense that when he is asked if he's with Jesus, Um, anything that he could have used to defend himself, so he winds up using falsehood. He winds up giving in to temptation, and it's discouraging for him. This Peter learned a number of lessons, and it's him who's writing the letter we've been looking at, the first epistle that Peter, that's attributed to Peter. So we've been walking through this, and now Peter is going to tell us what we're looking at today is how as citizens to think about how we relate to the government. Remember, the one writing this saw Pontius Pilate equivocate. (laughs) I know that there is nothing that this Jesus has done that makes him worthy to be condemned. But we're going to condemn him with the worst kind of punishment available. Peter writes to us saying, be subject to the emperor supreme and to the governors. He's not naive. Peter is not a person who works for the government that's trying to get us in order. Peter is a guy that saw the one he was devoted to unjustly killed. And he's not writing years later after there's been a reconciliation. Um, but depending on when you date this particular letter, if it, if it was written in the early 60s, uh, then Nero was the emperor. Nero, who famously, not just a persecutor of Christians, but somebody who is brutally violent to everyone. Nobody has high regard for him. And yet Peter, if he's writing at that time, writing to his followers, be subject to the emperor as supreme. So he's not assuming that the emperor had that red bumper sticker with the the white letters on his throne. Uh, This was not a branding thing for the emperor. He's talking about uh, this person who has, there's nobody that we could imagine in his time period who has greater power and authority. And then he sends local governors like Pilate. And Peter is calling us to be in subjection. Um, it's kind of offensive when you think about it, but this is, this is where 
uh, where we get provoked by the ways of Jesus because they're so different from the world that whoever we are, as we draw near to Jesus, whether it's as a skeptic or somebody considering Jesus or whether it's a devoted follower, there's something about Jesus that's going to tear down the problematic ways we've learned, learned to relate to the world. And he's going to send us out in better ways, but they don't make sense. They're not intuitive. We're going to be talking over a few weeks of subjection and how it applies to various relationships. And so verse 13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So that's why the concept of subjection. Uh, different translate could be sub translation submission. It's probably better that we're not using that word just because of the baggage of how uh, submission is inappropriately uh, applied. I don't know that subjection is much better, but there it is. This is a hard teaching. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. And so humans need to organize in good ways. And so we organize with government. We organize with work. We organize as families. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how this principle of subjection applies to these different spheres. Today, looking at subjection to the government. And, and, and here's the principle that underlies this. Uh, the, the teaching that seems to be part of what Peter is writing in Peter, which is when, when you are free, subjection can be a way of expressing love and honor. So when you're free, subjection can be a way of expressing love and honor. And so we are called to love, we are called to honor, and therefore one of the ways that that has to take shape is through our willing submission. It's for the good of ourselves and for our world. And so today we're going to apply that to being subject to uh, the authorities, the emperor, the governors, uh, or in whatever context, a democracy or a dictatorship or a monarchy. Uh, these words need to be adapted at different times and places. Um, but the, the principle of subjection as, as a willing exercise of love and honor is one that we need to see working itself out through these various relationships. So today I'm going to talk about three things, the problem of subjection, the benefit of subjection, and the opportunity of subjection. So I'm beginning with the problem of subjection because for most of us, that's probably the first thing that hits us. Wait a second, Jesus is telling us to be submissive. That sounds like what, what governments want the message of the church to be. <laughs> if we were to become a puppet, a tool of the government, it isn't exactly what they would tell the church to say, is go out and tell everyone to submit to us. Um, but again, remember who's writing it and when he's writing it. That's not certainly, certainly not what he's saying. So, so the principle I said is when you, you are free, subjection can be a way to express honor and love. And the question is free from what? if we use the language of this passage, free from evil. See, if you're free from evil and its power and control, then subjection is, is a, the appropriate expression of love and honor. Our problem is we are not free from evil. It's in us. We organize the institutions of the world, and therefore the institutions of the world uh, do evil. And so to talk about subjection, to government or any other kind of authority right away is scary, it's dangerous. So verse 13 uh, and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So today our focus is whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
So here's the thing, in, a, in an idealized world, the world in which we don't live, subjection would be a very good thing, being deferential. No, really, you, more than me. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all did that? But we live in a world where when I say you more than me, people say, okay, thank you. <laughs> and here's a little bit more of you that I would like to take from you. That's the problem. And so, so the way this works out practically, the warning in verse 16, for those who are free, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So how are we to deal with evil? Well, the first warning of Scripture is resist it. Don't give in to its lure. Don't bow under its intimidation. Evil will come to you in an attractive way that you'll want to do what you know you shouldn't do. It will come to you in an intimidating way. If you don't do it, you're going to suffer. So the warning of the Bible is, well, don't give in to evil. But we do, all of us, in some form, in some context. So then what do you do? Well, the second thing Scripture would say is, there's a threefold method of dealing with evil once you've given into it. One is admit it, acknowledge it. Secondly, turn from it and commit to not doing it anymore. And then third, to the degree that you have the capability to repair any of the damage you did, go do it, fix it. So you bring it out in the open, you commit to not doing it, and then you fix what you've done. That's the model. What you should not do is cover it up. So, so of the three, <laughs> resist evil, then acknowledge it, turn from it and fix it, and covering it up, which are humans the best at. Most people are trying to resist evil, whatever your moral system is. We try. But when we commit it, what is the more obvious outcome? Is it to admit it and to fix it, or is it to cover it up? The, uh, the great likelihood is our instincts are to cover it up. And that's the warning. You're not free. You're still under the power of evil. So if you're free, don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. And here he's talking to, to, to faithful citizens who might be ignoring the government, not because the government is unjust, but because we ourselves want to uh, do things that, that would be harmful. Um, we want the freedom to do what we want. And that's the very thing that, that the that Jesus is calling us out of, not to act on our selfish desires. And so the cover-up of evil creates such problems because then we're trying to control and manipulate each other. We cover it with lies. We cover it with uh, manipulation. We cover it with coercion and force. And so somehow it needs to come out in the open and be dealt with. And what Peter is saying is that's what a government should do. So a government, in verse 14, should be for the praise of those who are good. There should be an encouragement. Human beings should organize so that when good is happening, we encourage and fan it so that it grows. But when there is evil, we shouldn't cover it up and blame others for it and make excuses for it, but we should deal with it. See, the problem of human beings is we cover it. Somebody needs to deal with it. And so a government is sent by God to punish those who do evil. That's one way of dealing with evil. It's not the only way, and, and you can't construct a fully-orbed political theology from this passage. And my comments are more about our responsibility as citizens, but, but if you're going to think about, well, how should Christians exercise and steward power, uh, there's some things here to talk about, but the government is meant to be the ones that uncover evil and deal with it, and one way of dealing with it is by punishing it. But when you have human beings... Uh, over the institutions, 
people who are tempted to the war of evil uh, or fearful of the consequences also participate in covering things up. That's why this is so hard to talk about because governments don't expose and deal with evil and fix things, but governments also keep them hidden and they blame and they excuse and they redirect. So Peter saying be subject to every human institution sounds like a terrible thing to say. <laughs> he's calling together, he's assembling, he's part of Jesus' work for an alternate community. People who are truly free and not so rooted in evil that we're going to cover it up, but we're those that will say we are part of uncovering it, resisting it, and not being subject to it. That's the possibility, but the problem is we, when we have this uh, conversation, need to deal with it. And this is, I mean, every news article this week and somehow is dealing with this, and so if you think of, you know, Australia, not known as the most oppressive government uh, on the list of concerned government, but, but what do you do? with uh, this tennis player, and I, I keep wanting to say Dvorak, who's not the tennis player, but Djokovic, I think, is his name, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, but okay, he, here's a picture of that issue. Are individuals free, or do governments make, uh, make decisions? And is there freedom? Is there oppression? But it plays out in this complicated way. If my freedom is exercised by being tested positive for COVID and still showing up in public, is that me really showing how free I am, or is that a... At this point, is freedom a cover-up for evil? I mean, that's what we've had to figure this out this week. Not we, we get to watch it, but my understanding is he's on a plane back. Didn't make it into Australia after, after a week of figuring out the complexity of, of how do you balance freedom and authority? This is not easy. And it's not easy because human beings cover up evil, which means that it always needs to be said, as Jesus says, be subject. Here's Peter, is, is, is his servant. Be subject to every human authority, even the government. Peter is not naive that the government could behave unjustly. He lived in a very unjust environment. So one of the things that you need to do is sometimes uh, the integrity, the being committed to the truth, not being lured in by evil, is having to resist the evil intention of the government. What Peter is warning about is the selfish nature of us that will, anything we don't like, we're gonna moralize and say we're resisting what's evil. And he's warning us to say, sometimes you just need to be subject. But on the other hand, it always needs to be said that, that resisting evil sometimes means standing firmly against it with clarity. And in the Bible, there are different models for that. And, and I think what most of us want, certainly what I want, is what is the principle so I know what to do today? But, but society changes so much that what we do here is different what, than maybe you do in Brazil or maybe what you would do in China or what you would do in Belgium. Uh, you know, different governmental forms, different societal issues. Um, there's not that this is what you always do. So in scripture, you see different contexts. And I'll give two examples. One is Daniel and his friends under Nebuchadnezzar uh, the Babylonian, then later on the Persian leaders, you see that, that now you have Daniel and his friends are, are thriving within this problematic government, certainly from the Bible's perspective. These are people who, who came in and destroyed God's people. And yet Daniel and his friends are rising the ranks within that system, but their submission, I don't know if that passive is the right word, but the opening chapter, we're not going to eat the meat that the king prepares, but we're not going to tell him. We're not standing out and protesting, but we're simply going to secretly have a different diet and hope that, that God protects us. Um, but they're not able to stay secret as, 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 the, as the story goes on, and so there's a command to bow and worship 
uh, a statue, an idol, and Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego in, in the book, you could command us to do it, but we're simply not going to. And, and again, they're trying to keep it secret, but at the end of the day, if you're going to force it, we won't, and so they get thrown in the fire's den, uh, the fire. And, and they believe God can save them, but they're not presumptuous that God will, but they, they take a stand. We will not, ha you cannot make us do this. And then Daniel, who is forbidden to pray to his God, so in the secret of his room, he still prays to God. But because it was a plot against him, it comes out. He's accused, and he gets thrown in the lion's den. Uh, so here you have servants who are willing to face death, uh, to stay faithful to God, but not in a proactive way. They're simply, if the government is going to keep us from doing what God tells us to do, we're still going to do the good thing God tells us to do. That's one model. But another model is John the Baptist. Now, again, they're different contexts. Nebuchadnezzar uh, was not under the law of Moses. Herod was supposed to be. But John the Baptist spoke out so proactively that he became such an irritant to Herod, calling him out on various um, ways that he was failing as a leader, as a moral leader, that it led to his being beheaded. So John the Baptist is a different model of the bold, courageous person who stands and speaks out, and he faces. So you could face the death penalty for simply doing what God requires, or you could face the death penalty for pointing out that others are not doing what God requires. Uh, those are only two of the models. But because we live in this world, Peter is urging us, your, your default is not to fight because the sinful human heart will, will take that and run with it. Our default is to cooperate and to let leaders lead. Leadership is hard. And in an ideal context, that should be good and rewarding and obvious. But even in a good context, like the United States, where we're a democracy, we, we vote for our own leaders. So it's, it's more complicated. What does it look like to resist the government when we kind of are the government, a government of the people. So we need to work this out in, in, in a unique context that there's not one clear principle that you always apply, but certainly as we do it as the church, this general principle of subjection is a way of honoring. And so we don't live in a perfect world, but Peter didn't, and so we should seek to honor, but we also have to recognize it's going to be complex. And so I wanted to begin with the problem of subjection. Uh, because in every application, work and family, um, evil is there. But I want to talk about now a second thing, a benefit of subjection. And, um, you know, love and honor, that's the goal. The goal is not subjection. The goal is to love. And in this case, to honor. Now we're talking about elected officials or appointed officials. Honor the emperor. Honor the governor. If the goal is honor, one of the means of expressing honor and expressing love, as the Bible describes it, is through um, the giving of yourself, through submission, through humility, through putting others first. If everyone was doing that in society, we would all flourish. And if most of us were doing it, even if there were exceptions to it, our love would cover a multitude of sins. The problem is the world is incentivized to pull you towards standing up for yourself against others, and therefore we're blind to our own selfishness. But, but love often requires willing sacrifice. And so if I have $100 and I choose to spend it on you because I love you, I'm making a sacrifice that I'm limiting myself. I now no longer have that, the, that $100 to do what I want for myself, but, but that's what you do when you love, is I could use this for me, but I'm choosing to do this for you. So if you get a dog during COVID, and if you try to persuade the kids as much as they love dogs that, uh, that loving a dog requires sacrifice, then if it's 10 degrees, uh, 
as it might be this morning. You may love the warmth of your bed, but loving the dog means you need to take it out because that's part of the commitment. Well, I love the dog, but I don't love the dog that much this morning when it's 10 degrees out, but, but that's part of that subjection, that submission. But if you've committed to the, the, the delight and the joy, well, sometimes love involves the sacrifice that you don't want to make, but you do it. And so the idea of subjection should be obvious, but it's because of our complicated world that it's not. But, but love and honor are beneficial. And so the, the teaching is not that subjection is good. The teaching is that we need to love and honor. The reality is, because we're not isolated individuals, we need to express that through subjection. And that is good. It's beneficial. Now, in verse 12, it gives us one of the reasons why here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So the Gentiles of the nations, those, you know, the various people that don't believe what we believe, who are not part of the community of faith. Keep your conduct among them, wherever you are, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So here's part of the problem. Uh, when the world is covering up evil, eventually you get confused, and rather than praising what's good and punishing what's evil, you start to, to think what's good is evil simply because it's, uh, there's the vulnerability of exposing what we're covering up. And so we are called to have the kind of integrity which means that if you are faithful to follow and live like Jesus, you will be hated for it. How could that be? How, if you are generous and kind and compassionate, if you become subject, how could people hate you? It's the corruption of the world, but the benefit for the world is people that don't give in, but people who resist by staying the course of love and honor. And so the language of God's visitation, one day Jesus will come, one day everything will be exposed. Christians live with that wisdom to say, you know what, there is no covering anything up. That would be foolish to try. So let's just live with integrity by faith now. So in the future, we could be glad for his arrival for that day of vindication. But if you think about this concept of the day of visitation, you know, Jesus, uh, one of the most famous uh, events that's commemorated the week before Easter, his, his coming to Jerusalem with humility, riding on a colt, uh, which uh, the foal of a donkey, rather than coming on a war horse, coming, saying, I'm coming as a conqueror who's behind me, he comes as a humble person. Um, and, and there's a small little acknowledgement as people shout, Hosanna, praise to the son of David, then he comes to the temple, and uh, clearly there's already opposition. And at that point, Jesus weeps. You could read this in Luke 19, I believe. He weeps, and he says, Jerusalem, if you, even you, only knew of the things that brought about peace. Even you. So, so when the world is at war, that's understandable. But we have the, the law of Moses. We have Almighty God in our midst. Of all people... <laughs> On the day of your visitation, what are you going to do? You're going to tell people not to praise the king that God has sent, but to quiet them? To say, parents get these stupid kids uh, and shut them up because they're caught up in this song about the son of David? And he weeps, not feeling upset that he's not being honored, but knowing that his visitation will mean his rejection. And so... Um, verse 14 talks about the governors as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And the ultimate king of kings should be praised. At the, at the arrival of Jesus, there should be an outpouring of gratitude. Lord, you finally sent this servant to make things right. But instead of praising him as good, he was punished as if he had done evil. 
You know, the remarkable thing about the Christian message is to say that from the very beginning, whenever we think of evil, however we define it, it's always in reference to God, the starting point, God who creates all things good. And, and the initial temptation was something that strikes us as not so morally problematic. Adam and Eve ate fruit. But in it, there was that sense of we don't believe God. We're not going to be subject to what he says. And, and that seems simple, but then you watch how it plays out in the book of Genesis, where it eventually does become murder and violence and all of these terrible things. And you watch how it plays out in the world. And then you realize that every wrongdoing is ultimately a wrongdoing against God who made us and calls us to praise what is good, to praise him, to live according to his ways. And every act of evil is an act ultimately against God. And so therefore, when we think of God offering forgiveness, and we think of love in emotional categories, of God may be angry because we sin, he may be sad, and maybe in his forgiving us, he's just getting over those feelings. The problem is much deeper. Society is trying to cover up evil. God is going to bring it out and deal with it. The remarkable thing about the Christian story, utterly unique, is that the nature of this God who is free, who is good, who is worthy of praise, when he sends his son, the king of kings, his son comes in the form of subjection. So he comes taking on human flesh and he's subject to the limitations of being a human being. He comes into this world and he's subject to the corruptions and the injustices. He himself is subject to disease and to temptation. And what we find is that the love of God for us is not just a big hug from heaven, but it's an uncovering and dealing with evil, where God basically says to deal with it, I myself am going to bear the punishment because that's what good government does. It, it rewards what's good, but it punishes what's evil. He comes to a people that are caught up and on the day of his visitation should be terrified if God is going to make things right and deal with evil. And he says, but in advance of that, my love for you took the form of subjection. Jesus took the form of a servant. And he humbled himself to death on a cross. And having borne the punishment that our sins deserve, he makes it possible that we could rejoice in the praise that he deserves, that, that he honors us through the way he has loved us. And once we grasp that reality, that evil is not just a problem out there, but, but evil is a problem in here and everywhere, how does it get dealt with? God deals with it not by coming with the sword, but by allowing the world to raise the sword to him and to show that his ways are not our ways. There's something there that's meant to show us the greatness and the praiseworthiness of God. And it's restorative to us if you grasp um, how we should be afraid of a just ruler who punishes evil. The announcement of forgiveness that are evil against him, he sets us free. He, it doesn't just go away, but he deals with it by bearing it. It's a measure of sacrificial love that says that Christianity is not about fluffiness. It's about dealing with real problems and, and bringing them out in the open and through God's grace and forgiveness, calling unworthy people to receive grace, to be loved by him, and to become honorable, and then sending us into the world to say, now this is a new way of going into the world. Resist evil, turn from it, be people of truth and courage, and so don't cover it up, but living that way will uncover it. But part of that calling of subjection is at times we will bear the unfair um, ways of the world.
The Lord does not applaud that as though it's good, but he says you're better off suffering injustice than perpetuating it. So God sends us into the world to follow Jesus with different kinds of weapons to protect us, but also with the possibility that we may change the world. <laughs> that by being people of truth, by be being people who resist, by being people who stand for what's upright, by being, being people who honor those who on their own are not honorable. And so the emperor was not an honorable person, but having somebody oversee things is. And so we're encouraged. It's interesting, the language is not love the emperor. It's love the brotherhood. <laughs> In an ideal world, you should love the emperor. But we're told, well, even if you don't love the emperor, honor the emperor as put in that position by God because in doing so, that's how you honor God. And so um, the benefit of subjection comes to Christians. If you're a Christian, you benefit from God whose love takes the form of a sacrificial love. And if you're not a Christian, understand that that's part of the invitation, that when, when Jesus says, follow me, he knows that you're flawed and imperfect, but he invites you to a different way of life, and he accepts you as you are and calls you to bring everything out in the open and to commit to changing um, and to going back into the world, seeking to repair things. It's a hard way of life, but it is a beneficial way of life for us who receive God's grace, but for the world who has a community of grace that is meant to live in a different way. So, um, verse 15, this is the will of God that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Part of doing good will take the form of loving and honoring others, and it means freely subjecting ourselves, humbling ourselves. God will be pleased. Your reward will come from him. The world should be pleased and thank you. But here's what we're told is when they don't, still do it. Still do what God would have you do, and eventually there will be a vindication. There will be a silencing. The last word will come from God. And therefore, if you're faithful, you will have joy that uh, even if you suffered unnecessarily, if you stood with God resisting evil and didn't give in to it, the last word will be honor. And so here's the last thing I want to talk about today, the third thing, the opportunity of subjection. So the problem of subjection is evil in the world. The benefit of subjection is those who love and honor more than they are controlled by evil. If we receive it and if we do it, that's beneficial. But here's the opportunity. I just want to say some last things about the possibility now of of citizens who are so committed to the, to the truth and to justice that we will um, hopefully have a positive influence in the world. Verse 13 says it's for the Lord's sake. Verse 16 says living as servants of God. That is the paradigm of freedom. Um, in the evil and corruption of the world, what happens is we get caught up in it because we want the rewards that the world promises and we're afraid of the punishments that the world will deal out and therefore we're forced to be in subjection to them. If we want what they offer and if we're afraid of what they threaten. Um, Jesus is sent into the world to call us to ultimate allegiance to him. And what that does is it breaks the form of, of, of a power that the world can have over us, the institutions of the world, which is to say the reason I need to be subject to the, to the leader is because the leader can reward me, or if I'm not, the leader could punish me. The Christian has a better reason. <laughs> It's out of love, it's out of honor that we are subject. And therefore, there's a measure of freedom, which is to say, actually, if I trust God to be my vindicator, if I believe that God will raise me from the dead, even as he raised Jesus, then I am free from the threat of this government. I have a choice that if they threaten to do something harmful, 
I can say no. And if I'm tempted by sin, I now have the power to say no in whatever form that it, it happens. And so the possibility now is that you don't need to get your ultimate reward from a human being, and therefore you don't need to fear that a human being can take what you ultimately need. And that freedom allows us then that subjection is not our being victims of coercion, but our being committed to love and honor. It's a different paradigm, and we need that because it means sometimes subjection is, I don't want to do this, um, but I have to for honor. This is unfair what's being asked of me. They want me to go one mile, I'm going to go two. But sometimes subjection is, you're telling me not to pray, but I'm going to pray, and you can throw me in the lion's den. And you can say that it's okay, as Herod did, that I have my brother's wife, but we're going to speak with clarity, even if it means that you will try to behead us. That's the freedom that we have, that, that subjection then is not something imposed on us, but um, love and honor are something you give away. <laughs> and when you're honoring somebody because you fear them, then, then it's not out of a spirit of generosity. We are set free by God who gives us all good things, who's given us Christ. When we see the rightness of his ways, then I can choose to honor someone, not because they are worthy of it or they demand it, but because that's the choice God wants you to make. Be an honorable person. And so verse 17, honor everyone. That's our attitude towards people. So of course the emperor as supreme should be honored. Um, not because the person is necessarily honorable, but we need people who will organize society so that good is encouraged. I mean, you could, you could get together a large group of musicians, but without a conductor, it's not going to be as harmonious. So you need somebody to to set the pace. We need people to, to organize societies. And so um, honor is, is the possibility that we could give ourselves away. And so, so I don't want to press this too far just because it's only the language of this passage. But the passage says, love the brotherhood, meaning the com community of faith. There's a certain kind of laying down our lives for our family that maybe we don't have the same commitment as citizens because ultimately Peter addresses us as aliens, as sojourners in this world. And so our obligation to the government is not the same. But as honorable people, we are willing to be subject. So we don't necessarily love the governing official, but we do honor them. And that's important. Uh, and therefore, you know, when you think of contemporary examples of, of how does this play itself out, uh, one that's been on my mind for a number of years, and if you've been part of Emmanuel for years, you've heard me at times talk about or even pray for this figure uh, from Chengdu in China, Wang Yi. Um, a pastor who's in prison right now, and his charge was subversion of the government. And the form of subversion was he was told not to pastor, and he continued pastoring. And he's interesting to me for a number of reasons. One is he, he left a career teaching law at a university in order to become a pastor. So, so you know, there's, there, you know here be, um, don't use your, um, your freedom as a cover-up for evil. There's all sorts of Christians who are clueless to how things actually work and therefore get themselves in trouble, not because they're courageous, but because they just don't get it. Here's a guy that he understands law. He understood what he was doing when he said, I'm going to choose to resist, and if you're commanding that we don't gather, I'm still going to gather. And he was arrested, and he was threatened, and he was harassed. Now, here's a guy with a family. He doesn't want to go to prison. He has health conditions, so he knows going into prison will create certain vulnerabilities for him. This is not a guy that, that uh, is looking forward to go to prison. This is a guy that thinks it's a major problem, but his own conviction is that maybe the Lord has appointed me to be the forerunner, the voice of courage. Now, the interesting thing is uh, he, his stance was more proactive in public. 
he's going to stand and speak out against the government, and so he lands in prison. Um, my understanding is within the house church movement in China, there's some people that want to take a different approach, the more Daniel approach. You know, there are guards here that they don't hate us. They don't want to arrest us. So if we could just gather quietly, they're going to pretend they don't see us. We're going to gather. And then as a strategy, we can grow the church. And the church will grow, and eventually we'll win people over. So some are saying maybe that's the way to do it. Wang Yi, uh, he said actually the way to do it is to stand with clarity. So we're going to stand up, and know, now the government's going to know that we're meeting, which means the soldier who doesn't want to arrest us now has to or now is angry because we've stood against him and now he wants to, whereas he formerly didn't. And so what is the right thing to do? I, I, I'm interested in him because I myself don't know what we should do in our context. Our context is different. But what I see is courage. He's not a guy, you know, sometimes activism in the United States advances your career. <laughs> Here's a guy that his speaking out is offering him nothing. He's now imprisoned. Uh, he's clearly courageous. He's clearly committed. He's willing to put um, his life where his convictions are. And so um, there's a document that you could read that he wrote knowing that he was going to be in prison called My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. It, it gives one model of how a Christian today is theologically trying to learn from history and stand against the government. You could see that he is influenced both by Martin Luther and I would suspect Martin Luther King um, in his approach. And, and there's a lot that he says, but one thing that he says uh, I'll just read just a couple of sentences. He says, I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Now you read the rest of this declaration and he is offensively clear to the government what you are doing is evil he's not apologizing he is taking the strong that's kind of the John the Baptist speaking out with clarity but what he's saying is at the end of the day what you are doing is evil and if I have to give up my freedom to not be under your control one day it will become painfully clear that the ways of God were right and it will be seen and it may not be until a future generation that's the problem is that one generation needs to sacrifice in ways that they may not benefit. And so Martin Luther King Jr. becomes an example of that, that many people would criticize a, a number of things problematically. But, but one of the hardest things for us to conceive of is a nonviolent resistance movement. Now, there's a lot of Christian theologians that would say nonviolence is not exactly a fully biblical model, and we could debate that. But one thing that you see is you think nonviolent, you know, is cowardly. <laughs> Uh, we're not going to stand up with violence. And so there was something about King who was painfully truthful, so he showed that he was courageous, and he was willing to show up. His nonviolence wasn't hide in the basement. His, his nonviolence was show up, but when they hit you, don't hit them with your fist, but continue to speak. It's a model that we could debate. Is it the most effective? Is it the most pragmatic? But it certainly wasn't, you know, a guy that speaks the truth. Did you have to shoot him? Like, why would he be so hated? And at the time, the church was caught up in the confusion about him and his methods. But one advantage, and again, I'm not necessarily making a case that nonviolence is always the way, but one advantage of a guy that's saying, I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to be truthful, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to be willing to sacrifice myself, is even if I die, which none of us want to be the nature of our movement, 
future generations will look back and they'll see the clarity. Right now, we think of King as a hero because we look back and we realize with clarity because he didn't, if, if he showed up with a gun, then we may need to say, you know, the police did need to beat that crowd. But now you look back and you say, what on earth were they doing? And, it, and it's that commitment to truth and justice, but not getting lured into the means of power in the world that leaves a legacy that we could look back and experience the shame that we couldn't see then because we were trying to cover up evil and say, it should have been obvious and it wasn't. But here's a guy who, who devoted his life to future generations looking back with greater clarity. And because, to the, and he was not a perfect human being, but to the degree that he honored his convictions of Christianity, he's left a clarifying legacy that we could look back and say, wow, we were wrong. And, and, and that's what we're called to through subjection. If we are to love and to honor, uh, we are called in, in every generation to, to trust God as the vindicator, to believe that good will have the final word. So, so resist evil, don't give into it. And we are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. We, we want to uncover evil so we have nothing to do with it. And so Peter himself, you know, we began with Peter denying Jesus, but, but Peter who now writes to us, he sees Pilate crucify him. Um, we don't know exactly how Peter died, but, but historians are pretty confident he died in Rome. Legend has it he was crucified, and there's a story about his requesting being crucified upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of the honor of dying in the same way that Jesus did. You know, here's a guy that was radically changed. And whether or not he was crucified, he died in Rome, probably under the emperor that he said, now honor the emperor as supreme. As far as we know, that emperor, uh, his governors killed Peter as well. So Peter is not writing to us as somebody naive. But, but after Jesus meets with, with Peter at the end of John's gospel in chapter 21, Jesus has been raised. And then there's a restoration to Peter who had denied him where he says, Peter, do you love me? These are among the last words. It's not the final word in John's gospel, but they're near the end in chapter 21, verses 17 to 19. Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep. So now I'm, I'm taking my throne, but I'm leaving you here to be one who feeds, who encourages. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Um, John seems to record that, P that Peter had a word from Jesus. You will follow me in a very specific way, actually. You are also going to be a courageous leader, and you are going to speak out, and you'll be accused of evil, and you will be subject to the corrupt uh, demonstrations of our government. That's the Peter who writes to us and says, honor everyone, honor the emperor. Uh, Peter believed this enough that he himself would be killed under this emperor. And Jesus said, follow me. And, but before that, he says, feed my sheep. Peter is feeding us. When he writes to us and says, honor everyone, <laughs> be subject to one another. He's not the person in power trying to control us. He's the person without power trying to speak to the rest of us to say, get out of the world's power and then be honorable and trust that it will be beneficial to you and to this world. There's an opportunity here 
that if a, if a group of people who are subject to Jesus Christ and faithful to his ways live in this world following him, feeding one another, then subjection is not oppressive because we're doing it because God loves us. And our subjection to Christ the King will help us in different contexts to navigate what does it look like for me to love and honor these people. The goal is not subjection. The goal is love and honor. In a world where there's evil, subjection is complicated. But we're told if you trust God and if you believe that he will vindicate you, um, you can be a powerful presence in our generation. And it's that courage, that humility, that wisdom that creates a possibility that as we work out what does it mean to be citizens in an American democracy or in any place you may live in the future or where your citizenship may be, we're always aliens and exiles here, but we're always people who honor the King of Kings by following him. And there's an opportunity there to, to bring pleasure, glory, and honor to God by believing that the kingdom is not of this world, but we live in this world under the king, and that is good. Let me pray for us. Our Father, there's a vision here that should capture our hearts and inspire us, and yet because of our fear, because of our confusion, because of evil in our own lives, because of how we've been shaped by the world, we don't see it. We don't marvel, but maybe we resent how you're calling us or we're afraid of the implications. Lord, we pray for that freedom that is given to us by you, a freedom from sin and its power, the offer of forgiveness, the possibility that your spirit would make us new, that we would be born again to a living hope. Lord, we pray that we would have that hope taking deep roots in our hearts and minds and that you would give us that great courage to go out into this world seeking to love and to honor and help us as individuals, as citizens, uh, whether it's of this country or another country, to know what it looks like to apply these things in our day and age. Uh, and we pray for our country, that we pray that our government would, would grow in the ability to praise those who do good and to punish those who do evil. But we pray that your church throughout the globe would figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus in humility for the sake of uh, being a generation that the future generations will look back at and see that we were faithful to love you, that we would be a witness in our day of a freedom that is offered to all and yet so many resist. Lord, uh, free us and help us this week to know what it looks like to honor others as we go into the world. Give us the heart to do it, the joy of it, and the, um, the courage to be persistent in it. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.